we really should be getting prepared for the sole reason of relationship with God, living to please Him, trusting to obedience, letting God do in and through us what we are created for, our created design. Each one of you has been called and purchased by God to become a living sacrifice, which means that you, with your life, you live as a continual sacrifice to Jesus. Okay, that got a lot of amens, but it is still true. You know, I, I, I want to preface this whole message with this. We are forerunner leaders, and therefore a forerunner church. Over our lifetime, we've always been on the forefront of what God is doing and what culture, how culture is shifting. We respond to it before it's even shifting. This is awkward at times because most people don't live in the future. And so, as a precursor to the message, I wanted to put up the technology adoption curve. And I just want to look at this for a second. It's the little bell curve there. Some of you who are in business and things like that or technology know all about this. It's not new. But I found it incredibly rele relevant. I just want you to look at this for a second. And just a quick description of, I want you to find out where you are on this graph. Okay? So, I'll describe. The innovator which there's only 2.5% of us in the world, um, which makes us very strange. But, you know, in this, we see as new technology comes, but, you know, obviously you know where I'm going with this, right? That we're not talking about just new technology. We're talking about cultural shift, cultural paradigm shifts, paradigm changes, change management, change in the church. Okay, this is all part of this. But... We're going to look at technology because I believe there's a spiritual technology that's constantly taking place and shifting and changing. But innovators are those who are willing to take risks. They love trying new things and may even be the people encouraging others to do the same. <laughs> people like me like going against the grain and trying new things. They're the first to upgrade or experiment with a tool during beta testing. They are often the initiators of change. I am an innovator. Um, some key words, enthusiastic about new things, willing to take risks, not concerned with the idea of failure. Okay, now early adopters. So ask yourself, are you that? Maybe not, then we'll move on. While early adopters, which are about 13.5%, are trendsetters and tend to be comfortable taking risks. They want a to form a solid opinion of technology or these new things before they vocally support it. Early adopters love being the first to know about new things. These people are quick to sign up for new social media sites, experiment with new project management tool just for fun. What separates early adopters from innovators is early adopters are concerned about their reputation. Innovators are comfortable failing publicly. Early adopters like to gather information, personal experience with technology before they recommend it. When asked about new tech, early adopters want to appear knowledgeable and trendy, what, which is why they need to test a tool out before they know it. Keywords for the, this kind of person. Persuasive, willing to work through early bugs and setbacks, but concerned about their reputation. So there's a lot of hesitancy where with an innovator, they just need to know they feel this is the right way, and boom. Okay, early majority. Now, if you notice, we're getting higher and higher in percentages. A third of the population is early majority. 
These people are interested in new things but want proof of its effectiveness. These are the people who scour product reviews before making a purchase, and they quietly test out tools before committing. Case studies, real-life user stories trump generic promises of what a tool or program can do. For the adopters in this category, you'll need a practical approach. So these people are logical, practical, and data-driven. Now, much like the early majority, the late majority, which is another third of the population. Now, think about this. Right in the middle here, this early and these, these um, late majority represents two-thirds of the population. So if in this very church, we probably have two-thirds of the people who are early and late majority. They want a data-driven reason to adopt new things. Convincing people in this adopter category requires research, solid proof that the technology is worth their time. Are these new things going to be worth it? People in the late majority do not like to take risks, and they tend to ask to question the need for changes. Is it really necessary that we change this? They are not easily persuaded by trends, preferring instead to watch how things play out before they get involved. These are the people who hit snooze on any kind of updates or new things for as long as they can, waiting to hear how peers react to the updates. Three words that describe this group, or maybe you, cautious, logical, risk adverse. Now then there's the laggards. Okay, now I didn't make up the name, sorry about that. But there's 16% of people who are in this category. They are wary of anything new. Before they consider getting on board, they need answers to their what's in it for me questions. They call that WIIFM. Laggards prefer the status quo because they know what to expect. They are the most stubborn users, easily frustrated by new things, quick to give up a, on a tool that doesn't immediately make their life easier. Stupid thing. This is great for technology, but it's also insightful for paradigm shifts in our culture. So I spent some time because for those of you who are not in the innovator category, I may be frustrating to you. But you got to love me. The Bible says so. <laughs> and of course, I've learned over the years that you have to really work hard at helping everybody grow and adjust, right? But for, for months, we've been talking about preparation for what God is doing, okay? This chart is incredibly relevant to that. We're feeling like, and, and for years, for decades, we have always been on the cusp of knowing and just know what God is doing and what he's preparing his church for. And so we begin to preach on it. And believe me, I, I haven't been able to preach what I feel the Lord's shown me. I can't, no. I can't preach that because no one's ready for it. No one can handle it. No one, they're just, they would just be like, believe me, I've done it before. I've just disregarded that reason and it just caused turmoil. But these people here, we're seeing five, ten years down the road, we're seeing what needs to happen now to be ready for tomorrow, not today. And then our goal is to get everybody to begin to shift the ship slowly so that we can be ready for what God wants. In, in, 
In my estimation, there's going to be one of the greatest outpourings of God upon this planet. And we are not ready right now in the least bit. But it is coming quickly. There is a move of the Lord that's, that's happening and it's stirring. And like, just think about some of the services we've had, like the Repentance Sunday, like last week was just amazing. And they have these, it's not constant. There's just not this constant outpouring, but it's there. He's pouring out enough to say, I'm telling you, I am coming to visit. Prepare your hearts. So part of understanding where you are on the curve, okay, what kind of person you are with new things. You know, some of these things aren't new. Some of the paradigm shifts that we're facing in culture are not new. They're very old, but they seem new to people in the middle or the late majority because they're like, wow, this is, what is going on with our world? Well, it's been happening forever. You just started to realize and, and get a hold of it. But there's something happening in the body. There's something happening. God is moving on this planet, and he's preparing people. He's saying, get ready. I'm coming to visit. And, you know, hopefully this chart also helps you understand, you know, we wouldn't, I mean, even this building, folks, listen. We're 10 years into this building, okay? We, when we first got the building, okay, right now everyone's like, what would we do without this? I mean, we can't even fit in it. So this is, this is like 12 years ago, we're living in the reality of what was innovated 12 years ago. And back in that time, there was a lot of people who said, we don't want to leave the school. We want to rent the middle school, the high school. Why do we have to leave here? We'll just stay here. And to those, I presented this, this presentation to say, listen, here's our financial scenario. If we leave renting the school, we're much better moving into this building and this property. We do much better financially, and it is proven to be true. We have prospered here. God has blessed us. He's used the land to create wealth. He's, he's just, everything is coming to life. We're starting to occupy different areas of it. We can't fit in the building that we thought was a big stretch before. It's some incredible things. We, back in the day, we were planning for 7% interest. We only have like 3.25 on this whole thing. Like, that's amazing. Like, God moved the interest market at, at the perfect time we need to refinance. We got the right bank. I mean, everything just worked so well because God is behind it, right? Well, what we're living in right now, no one is stressed about the building. Everyone's like, oh, we have a great building. This is super. But it doesn't fit us. So we're already planning, meeting with engineers, creating a pathway for growth, and, and middle steps in between that we're going to share with everybody, bring the plans in and, and all that. But my point is, is that if it's not for the innovators in the beginning, we miss out and we're not prepared when we need to be prepared. So we work together. And you kind of dial me down a little bit and say, oh, okay, calm down. Don't, breathe. Don't, don't start heart racing. Calm down. It's okay. We just got to think about what he's saying and just be open and pray, right? Amen. Thank you, Sean. Okay, well, each of us has a role. Now, in organizational change, most of the burden for success is on the top executive leadership. In the church, though, this is somewhat true, 
But there's a huge factor that's very different. It's called the Holy Spirit, the chief change agent. We should call him holy change agent. Who is working on bringing people where God wants them to be. So it doesn't matter where you are on this chart. And that's why it's not like typical organizational change. You know, those principles work well. But really, we need to plug in to the Holy Spirit and let him begin to guide and inform your heart. It's the, the, the worship exhortation and the words that came forward were so amazing. It was the Lord speaking to us, saying, change, prepare, face the things in your heart so that you can hear from the Lord and you can step out and deal with what you need to deal and be ready to have all the delicacies that are provided. I, I felt I, that, that was so powerful, Noah, Chuck. The word of the Lord came. And I, I'm praying that, you know, they don't even know what I'm talking about. It's just the Holy Spirit is trying to get us ready. Don't resist, don't resist, no matter how uncomfortable it is. You do not want to be a lagger or a late majority when it comes to the things of God. And I believe with the power of the Holy Spirit, we can go beyond what our natural inclination is. That we could be cultivated to say, Lord, I want to be quick to obey. I want to be able to trust you and be quick to obey. Even if my questions aren't answered. I want to be able to hear from you and then trust and walk it out and, and trust that you will answer my questions when I face scary situations or steps of faith where I'm called in a direction. I'm talking about the things God speaks to your heart. I mean, listen, I don't always get to innovate what I want to innovate. Sometimes I'm like, Lord, like, really? Just because you're an innovator doesn't mean you, you get, like, as, as a believer and a church leader, you get to innovate what you want. And that's hard. That's hard sometimes. The biblical method for change, get ready, Steve, is a process known as making disciples. Now, I did this whole thing because I want you to realize you are a disciple, which means I want to break down the definition because I think we need to get good at some of these definitions. You know, we come to faith in Jesus Christ and we become part of God's family, the church. In this family or community called the local church, we are able to grow and learn in his ways with others. Discipleship, becoming a disciple of Jesus is to follow, follow Jesus, but it's not this private little thing. The whole biblical is steeped in a context of community. We're called to be a disciple in the household of faith. In the family or community called the local church, we're able to grow, learn his ways with others, and that is intended to result in a changed life that causes you to be able to change others. Okay, in first principles, we learn the words, if you've been around a while, kerygma, the proclamation. It's what our cafe is called because all the proceeds go to missions. Proclamation. So that proclamation that you heard one day, those of you who have accepted Jesus Christ, come to a faith in Christ, you've received the proclamation, that good news, that Jesus Christ is Lord, and he died on the cross for your sins, and that sacrifice has washed away the penalty of sin and death, and you've been filled in your heart with his love, because you're like, I am one and purchased and saved, I don't 
have to do anything. He's paid the price. That is a lot of love right there. Right? So, and it leads us, once we do that and we come to Christ, we start growing in Didache. Didache is doctrine. But some people think it's like you go to this class and you learn the catechism. That's not doctrine. Doctrine is you learn about the Lord and your life starts changing. Doctrine is a way of life. Doctrine is taking in the word of God and the principles so much so it starts to change you from the inside out. See, you guys are growing in doctrine. Didache. Because you accepted Jesus and you came to a place and now everything starts shifting your life. Some of the ways you think, some of the ways you act, some of the ways you talk, and you're like, what's going on? You're learning God's way, and it's starting to change the way you are. And that's what's happening in all of us. Every single one of us should be changing. We didn't get saved and then put the brakes on and say, well, I got my ticket to heaven. I'm starving. I'm checking out, Lord. Just call me. Take me off the bench when you're ready. That's not how it works. You come to Jesus Christ, and then he continues working on you till you meet him in the clouds. But all along the way, he's like, oh, no, it's not just saying a prayer of salvation. No, now you have to learn my way. Then you're going to have to walk in it and then promote it. That's the full spectrum. It's not doesn't stop like halfway. So Matthew 28, 16 says, But the eleven disciples proceeded to Galilee to the mountain which Jesus has de had designated to them. He had said, like, meet me here. And when they saw him, they worshipped him. Listen to this, but some were doubtful. See, doubt and questions and struggles, they're all part of becoming a disciple. And for those of you who are kind of in the middle here, you're like, I don't know, this new way with Jesus? The interveyors are like, yes, sir, where are we going? What are we doing, man? Oh, sell everything? Sure, okay. I'm, I'm there. What are we doing? You know, then you got the, the early adopters are like, hey, you know, I'm, I'm cool with this. Just want you to know, but I, I, I want to have some answers to my questions. Can you tell me, like, ex at least let us know where you're going? What are we doing here? The early majority, some of the late majority, they're like, you know, I don't know. Can, can I go on your second trip? Can you come in back and get me? Once you work all the kinks out and stuff, hey, I'll be here. I'm all for you, man. Just like maybe the second trip and give me about like six months notice because I, I, I got a busy schedule. But certainly I'm sure I could fit in the second trip. The laggers are like, you know, can you first like establish your movement and then, like, here's my number, Jesus. Take it, and if you can, just reach back with me in about a year or two. I mean, maybe four. It depends. Whatever it takes to get really solidified, and once there's a really good following, give me a ring. I'll join. Right? So there's all these, always this doubt that we deal with. And Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, make disciples of all the nations. I want you to realize he didn't say, go make disciples of your friends. Make disciples of all people groups, groups, nations. This is a very corporate statement. It's not saying, like, go and win a friend of the Lord, even though that's part of it. 
he's speaking to his leaders saying, go and make disciples of groups of people. This is like a church planting, like, mantra that he placed on the church. Go, reproduce, reproduce whole churches. Just go and disciple nations and plant churches and start churches and expand, multiply, right? Baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to follow all I commanded you. And behold, I am with you to the end of the age. Now, in this, we're going to just shift over to this national study on discipleship making. This was done across the nation. Now, interesting things. It's, a, it's, a, it's a quite a lengthy one, and I'm going to just quickly highlight a few of these things. Uh, one is, you know, there's four metrics. If you guys could put up page four metrics. So put up... Uh, Put up the definition um, from page. Hold on. We're trying to get a slide so you could just read along here. Page five. If you could just put the five disciple-making church profiles. So this was done to kind of, it's a brief summary, to see if the church was effective in fulfilling the Great Commission. To make disciples, like we just read in 28. So they surveyed a, a whole group of, of churches, and then they said, okay, we're going to put the churches in five categories. Okay? And this is how we're going we're gonna to determine, and there was, I could tell you all the sourcing of the, the survey, how many were surveyed, a thousand across different denominations, all leaders that took this extensive survey about explaining what they did for disciples in the church. Now, what's interesting to note here is everyone spoke that they were doing way more than they were. And so basically they had fact checks for every single one of these things. There's probably 20 organizations that have come together to fund this with, um, with, a, with a company called Gray Matter Research. But there's, in this one survey, there was like all these organizations that are given to discipleship like Bonhoeffer Project, Dandelion Resourcing, Disciple First, Downhill Ministry, Downline Ministries, Emotional Healthy Discipleship, Exponential, Faith International University, Final Command, Global Discipleship, Legacy Discipleship, Lion's Share, New Generations, and, and it just goes on and on and on and on. Navigators were part, New Generations. Um, and so they came up with these five categories. You could put that little chart with the pluses and minuses up if you'd like. For simplicity, Five profiles that are practical and measurable. Okay, so level one is that they, this kind of church is subtracting from discipleship making. Um, the second kind of church is plateaued, neither helping or hindering disciple making. Third kind of church is adding disciples by church programs. Fourth is reproducing personal disciple makers. And the fifth is multiplying personal disciple makers. So let's look at a few definitions. So right here, we have type one, two, three, four, five. You really don't want to be a one or two church. That would be very bad if you were actually working against creating more disciples, right? But they are out there. I'm going to share a few stats with you that you're going to go, what? What? 
Um, three is, you know, plateaued, or two is plateaued. Then we got three who's beginning to help a little bit. They're adding people. Four is, um, I'll read some descriptions. They're reproducing disciple makers. So not just adding disciples as three, but they're actually adding people who are making disciples. So they're helping that army, that force of nurturing people. Okay, so just a few little definitions. If you wanted to go to 15, don't, don't even do it. No one's going to be able to read that anyway. I'm just going to read those, um, a few definitions like what a disciple is so that we can understand kind of where they're at. So a disciple is someone who's following Jesus, being changed by Jesus. Now think about that. In light of what I've shared about change, okay, you're being changed by Jesus. You do not qualify for a disciple if you stop being changed by Jesus. That's the implication here. Okay? And is committed to the mission of Jesus. Okay? Discipleship. Disciple-making. Uh, discipleship I'll do because they don't like this word. It's simply the state of being a disciple. The word, like the word evangelism, is not in the Bible. Unfortunately, in the North American church, discipleship is typically seen as an educational process designed to orient new believers to the biblical and everyday practices of our churches. And so we often prefer the term disciple-making. Disciple-making is entering into relationships to intentionally help people follow Jesus, to be changed by Jesus, and to join the mission of Jesus. Do you see the difference there? And, you know, there's a, someone, one of the students in Build had said, you know, it's not enough for you to go through first principles. First principles has to go through you. You know, if you're new, we have this thing called first principles. It's like a, it's a discussion oriented. You get to exchange ideas, read the word, talk about what that means, and then put a plan together. How am I going to make these first disciples become part of my faith? They're all extracted from the Bible. They're all part of the Bible. But the point is, is that you could go through first principles three times, but if first principles doesn't go through you, you're not changed. You're not being changed from faith to faith, glory to glory. So, a church, a church is defined as a spiritual family growing in surrendered obedience to all the teachings of Christ, who gather together regularly under biblically recognized leadership for the purpose of fulfilling the great commission, making disciples, with a great commandment heart, loving God, loving people. So then they, they have a lot more here, but I, for time's sake I need to move on. We're going to look at page six and seven, and I just want to kind of give you the kind of the, the a very broad review of what they discovered. So in these five levels, level one church, I'm not for time's sake going to go through level one and two because we don't in any way want to be part of a church that is de subtracting disciples or plateauing and not growing at all. But out of level one churches, these churches demonstrate the behaviors of people who are not passionate about growing in their relationship with Christ. Churches are numerically declining churches, level one churches, and 29% of churches in the U.S. fall into this category. 
One-third of all the churches in America are subtracting followers of Jesus. They're an agent of subtraction. Level two. Now, the behaviors of these churches describe those who identify with Christ but are not yet growing in their relationship with him. Similar to level one, they're not personally making disciples. However, they do help in disciple-making efforts by attempting to create church gatherings that involve people helping people to plateau in their life as disciples. They prevent disciple-making from progressing because they are assessing at level two. They don't seek intentionally to influence others in their growth. Now, level two churches are numerically plateaued churches, and 44% of the churches in USA fit in this category. That is 73%. So three-quarters of the churches in America are not making disciples. And it was the great commandment from the Lord. And in this whole making disciples is, I mean, it's exactly what Chuck said. It has to happen in you before you make one. Like, that's the point. And God forbid if a year from now we're still worried about becoming a disciple and we... And we have this eternal delay of hitting the snooze button because we aren't willing to change and we aren't willing to become the disciples so we can start making them. Okay, level three. These behaviors describe disciple-making churches that seek to intentionally advance disciple-making by the programs of the church. These dis churches add disciples by preaching, programs, pastoral ministry, various factors of the church. They do not mobilize significant numbers of members to become personal disciple makers. So these are people who are adding people into the church, helping them grow, but they're not reproducing people to make disciples and bring people into that. So... 27% of the churches in our country are like this. What are we up to now? We're almost up to 100, right? So level four churches. These churches are intentionally growing and are seeking to actively equip and coach members to make disciples. They raise up people who personally invest in relationships so they can make disciples and assist in others' discipleship-making efforts as well. So you have people who are causing people to be disciples. I'm not talking evangelists. That's like first step. But if you evangelize someone and leave them, they die, and they go by the wayside, and then they say, oh, I've tried that. That's worse than if they didn't get saved because they may not make it to heaven. Who knows? What kind of prayer was that? What happened in their heart, right? So... Um, the leaders are committed to the process of disciple-making personally. Do it themselves and join with the other leaders of their church or parachurch organizations. They see their roles coaching and equipping everyday disciples to become disciple-makers. So not to make disciples, but it's all about making disciple-makers. Guess how many percent? Less than five. Less than five percent. Now, level five, listen to this. Now, you know what I think is coming 
Listen to what, number, first of all, level five churches are a part of numerically growing churches, and they are also characterized as churches that are multiplying disciples and disciple making. We could not find statistically verifiable evidence of churches in the USA that fit this category. The behaviors, but listen to the description of this. And when I read it, my heart was going, exploding. I was like, this, this is what we're preparing for. This is what is going to happen here. God is going to do this in our midst. The behaviors of these disciple-making churches epitomize a unique movement of the Holy Spirit's power. They are churches where almost everyone makes disciples. Now picture that. Like, assess yourself, too. If you say, oh, I make disciples, do you lead them to the Lord, help them grow in the Lord, help them grow in the body, help them grow in the mission of Jesus, and then help them to make disciples. That is the fullness of a disciple. These are churches where almost everyone makes disciples. The leaders live to develop disciple makers who will then make other disciple makers to the fourth generation. These churches are igniting and fueling discipleship movements. I think one part I thought was just amazing. It says... Uh, let me see if I can find that. Just I gotta just share that little bit there. They are unique movements reflecting a revival-like culture, like that found in the early chapter and books of Acts. Discipleship, you know. Uh, let's see, and you know, across the earth they find these. They're happening in the global south where Build is working. Build has focused their attention on places where the Holy Spirit's pouring out like this in such a powerful way, and people are coming to the Lord. There's a recruitment, mobilization of people becoming disciple makers. It's happening. It's just not happening here yet. But it's going to Africa, where there was like almost no Christianity, like New Hampshire, one of the lowest church attending states in the whole U.S. God is going to cause this place to become one of the greatest centers of revival, I'm telling you. And it can happen like this. In Africa, it went from nothing to millions and tens of millions. It was viral. And that's what, that's what a level five church is, is called. I, I got to wrap up here. Um, you know, this isn't individualistic. This, this results in planting churches. And in our context, life groups. Like literally planting life groups that are centers of, you know, like what you see a little bit on Sunday, this kind of like people coming with a word. I mean, yes, you're supposed to bring food. It's supposed to be a meal where you break bread and you share things and you talk and you build relationship. But then it's supposed to be a time where every single one of you comes with a gift to share, a gift in your heart, like the prophetic word Noah gave or the one that Chuck gave. Just this, this thing to share, encourage the people in the work of the Lord, a testimony an encouragement, you know, some kind of gift of the Spirit. You come to life group, to house church, and you begin to share that. That's what it's about. And, you know, if we come just for the meal and don't allow the Holy Spirit in, we're going to have a little social club. We need to even make the meal meaningful, like really acknowledging we are taking communion right now. We're having the body and the blood of the Lord Jesus right here. Open in prayer, acknowledge your time over that meal is that communion. You know, this reminded me, and this is what I want to close with, is Matthew 25, 1 through 13 talks about the parable of the ten virgins. 
It was preached by Jesus at Jerusalem's temple. It was given Sunday, April 2nd, 30 A.D., just two days before his final Passover on Tuesday. It's a cautionary story about being prepared for Christ's coming. And that's what I believe we are preparing for. We're preparing for Christ's coming, that when he comes and he visits us, and we're flooded with people coming to Jesus, we will be ready with our lamps trimmed, ready to give out the oil of the Holy Spirit. So the kingdom of heaven will be compared to ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the groom. Five of them were foolish and five were prudent. For when the foolish took their lamps, they did not take extra oil with them. But the prudent ones took oil in flasks with their lamps. Now while the groom was delaying, they all became drowsy and began to sleep. Man, it's, it's much like Noah's word. You know, you become drowsy. You begin to not pay attention. You begin to not be sensitive to what's happening around you. You're droggy. You're groggy. You're, you're not really aware. Things become blurry. Now, while the groom was delaying, think about that. How many people would say, you know, that groom is late. Jesus, sorry, you got to be on time. Like, you know, I'm a timely person, so I'm gone. I'm only waiting so long. Guys, put this in perspective. Like this perfect Jesus delayed on purpose. Why? Maybe to test what's in our hearts. Now, while the groom was delaying, they all became drowsy and began to sleep. But at midnight, there finally was a shout. Behold the groom! Come out to meet him! Then all these virgins got up and trimmed their lamps. But the foolish virgins said to the prudent ones, Give us some of your oil! But the foolish... However, the prudent ones answered, No, there most certainly would not be enough for us and you too. Go instead to the merchants and buy some for yourselves. These are those people who, when they're early, late adopters, and it's okay in technology to be whatever you need to be. But in the church, when you're saying, prepare, prepare, I am coming to meet you. You can't say, like, these, these foolish ones were the ones who were like, oh, I'll just wait a little bit here. We should have enough. But while they were on their way to buy the oil that they just didn't, weren't prepared with. The groom came. And those who were ready went in with him to the wedding feast. And the door was shut. Yet later the other virgins also came saying, Lord, Lord, open up for us. But he answered, truly, I say to you, I do not know you. Be on the alert then, because you do not know the day or the hour. And the whole purpose of this parable is prepare while you can prepare. And this preparation is all about you pressing into a relationship with God for yourself. And when he says deal with this, you deal with the things in your heart. But they're scary. I don't want to. Well, then you have an issue with the cross. Because you've been bought with a price. And we don't have the luxury to tell him what we want to do and not want to do in our heart. He owns us. 
He saved us from hell, depression, desperation. And he filled us with his spirit and said, I've given you everything you need for life and godliness. Overcome the world. Lord, I just pray for each person here that, Lord, that we would respond appropriately to you, Lord. And it's our prayer that you make us ready. And we pray, Lord God, we just say, Lord, we will prepare our hearts. We will allow your spirit to come and invade those places that we have barricaded shut. Lord, I pray you just strip away fear, improper thinking, bad, bad attitudes, Lord. Lord, I pray you fill us with the joy of our salvation that thinks about and is grateful for all you've done in our lives and in our hearts. That our focus is on that. Our focus is on pleasing you, living for you, trusting and obeying you. Becoming what you want us to be. Being that disciple who lives for you in your mission and allows you to make us disciple makers. Where we spend our time in wisdom we win souls. We reach out, we disciple, we allow people to grow in Christ and his mission. We're pillars in the church, unashamedly. We're not afraid to work, to pay a price, to labor for the Lord. To be accountable. To let our progress be known to everybody. To be an example. Lord, we pray for a visitation upon us, Lord. Pray that you move upon our hearts. I pray for such motivation. I pray for refreshing to spring up inside hearts. Lord, that people would catch the vision and the fire of the Spirit of the Lord and what he's doing on this earth.